Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tom Salemi. You're now listening to the OIS Podcast. This is our second OIS Podcast of 2018, and it is a true joy to have you back. Had a great conversation with an old friend, Roger Longman. Roger is the CEO of a very cool company called Real Endpoints. Roger and I actually worked together, or more specifically, I worked for him when he was uh, one of the two principals of a company called Windover, and they put out two great magazines, In Vivo and Startup Magazines. I was very proud to write for both. Roger, though, uh, in, in my path, diverged a bit uh, after Windover had been acquired, and Roger moved on to start this, uh, this company, Real Endpoints, which is really finding itself in the eye of the pharmaceutical pricing storm at the moment. Uh, in this conversation, I, I got to talk to Roger about a lot of things. We talked a bit about the pricing pressures facing pharma, why they're drawing so much attention now. But then we, of course, got more uh, deeper into the, the issue of the day for ophthalmology, which was uh, uh, Spark Therapeutics pricing of Lexterna. It got a lot of headlines at the end of December. We talked a bit about what Spark did right in, uh, in coming up with the strategy and in working with payers. It's already signed a deal with Harvard Pilgrim up here in Boston. And uh, we talked also about uh, some of the, 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 the cool mechanisms that Spark put into its agreement and likely will put into uh, to other agreements going forward. So Roger knows this stuff really well. It was, uh, it was really great to talk to him and get his assessment, not only of Spark's situation, but of the, uh, of the issue more broadly facing pharma companies that are dealing with having to understand who is going to pay for their drugs and how they're going to pay. This wasn't always a, a challenge that bi- uh, biotechs and biopharmas had to face. So we're, of course, starting to see this in ophthalmology, and I think it's a real timely conversation. So thank you, Roger, for taking the time to, uh, to bring us up to speed before I get into this conversation, though, I did want to let you know that we are looking at a, a deadline coming up for uh, registration prices for OIS at ASCRS, which is uh, happening on April 12th. It'll be in D.C. The, uh, the full price of the, the conference is $1,095. At the moment, though, if you register before February, you'll save a couple hundred bucks. It'll be 895 So. That deadline is approaching. Uh, it's February first, so if you're if you know you're going to be attending OIS at ASCRS, might as well register now. Just go to ois.net to sign up. Now let's get into this great conversation with Roger Longman of Real Endpoints. Well, Roger Longman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to, to reconnect with you. Uh, you and I worked together for quite a number of years. In fact, I think this is our anniversary of bits. I think uh, we first met uh, on the Monday of a JP Morgan at Sears. Uh, I was having breakfast. You were having breakfast, and you came over and said hello. So it's, that's right. It's nice to uh, it's nice to connect on this very special day. So we're here to talk about Luxterna and, uh, and and gene therapy pricing and, and drug pricing overall. But I want to first. Uh, let our listeners know what you do at Real Endpoints, what Real Endpoints does, and, and uh, who are your clients, what are your products? Give us a, a bit of background. Well, we are a company, uh, we use a set of tools to focus on, uh, to increase market access and maximize pharmaceutical and diagnostic value. 
So we are 100% focused on market access. We have a number of proprietary approaches uh, to assess uh, the value and economic impact of, of drugs and diagnostics. How timely is that? Well, we think it's fairly timely, and we have uh, we, we help our clients, largely uh, pharmaceutical and diagnostic companies, to uh, develop integrated clinical and launch strategies to optimize their launches. Uh, and once things are launched, we have a number of diagnostics which uh, focus on access tactics and execution and, and see how well uh, client companies compare to uh, either their competitors or to the market in general. And we're working fairly heavily uh, in um, the world of value-based agreements. So we have a number of clients with whom we are working with and, and uh, payers um, whom we are working uh, on deals which involve risk sharing. Interesting. So you had started the company uh, a few years ago, uh, but we're seeing drug pricing really is, uh, making front page news today uh, in the last couple of years, I should say. So again, you've been very timely with the creation of the company and now the surge of interest in the space. Just overall, wh- why is are these conversations making the front page today? Is it is it just driven by politics, ACA? Is it merely farmers' turn to get sort of looked at uh, as we examine healthcare costs? Or is there something uh, uh, really more substantial at play? Well, I guess there are a couple of uh, things. Um, I don't really think it has much to do with politics, except that politics certainly uh, underlines uh, the problems or highlights the problems when uh, it serves the politicians' interests. But ultimately, I think the real issue is um, is business. Uh, employers uh, who pay for a significant amount of health care in the U.S. and state governments, which also pay for a significant amount of health care through Medicaid, and the federal government are all pretty concerned with the increase in health care costs. And the fastest important cost sector, the fastest growing uh, cost sector, is specialty drug. And um, that's causing not merely premiums to increase, but it's also because of the way these plans are managing uh, their costs. It's causing a lot of cost shifting to patients. So patients are paying more for their drugs, not simply because the prices are increasing, though that's true, but because they're now asked to pay a larger share of the drug bill. So those two two issues, I think, are the most important factors in um, in our focus on prices these days. So where are we in, in sort of the, the management of that with or the addressing of that with value-based contracts and such? I know you do, you do a great amount of work there. Is this, are, are, is this management of drug pricing just, just beginning? Is it, is, it, is it still in the very early nascent stages or has it really kind of moved to the, the main stage and is, and is a substantial part of, uh, of the entire pricing infrastructure? number of questions there uh, Tom so let's 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 start for where, where are we uh, on on pricing uh, or on <clears throat> on access the one thing that has really shifted over the last couple of years the single most important thing is that industrial customers call them the payers 
uh, the insurance companies or call them employers or in any event groups who's who have a, uh, largely an economic interest in reducing uh, the growth in healthcare costs have become the dominant player in decisions around drug access. So a few years ago, uh, certainly when you and I were working together at Windover, um, the physician was the main uh, decision maker when it came to which drugs were going to get used. And payers largely simply paid the costs. What's happened is that as those costs have gone up, the physician has lost a lot of his power, his or her power, to, uh, to select a drug. And payers or their agents, uh, such as the pharmacy benefit managers, are making a much more concerted effort to select which drugs are going to be made accessible or easily accessible to patients, which limits the prescribing choice of physicians. It's not that patients can't get the drugs theoretically, they can. They just have to pay out of pocket for them, uh, which in most cases means that they're not going to get those drugs. So that industrialization of the uh, pharmaceutical prescribing choice has been the single most important uh, change in the pharmaceutical industry uh, since, I think, the development of um, biotechnology. This has changed the world. It has changed everything about commercialization. Um, when you then go on to ask about <clears throat> value-based agreements, they are still not mainstream. The fact is, is most drugs uh, go through a fairly defined contracting process, which simply allows a, a company to create uh, volume in a particular plan uh, in return for rebates. And those are very simple. Uh, they, they, are, they have been easy to manage. They're easy to track. They're the pattern, and people rely on patterns. What's changed is that increasingly employers and other ultimate payers want to be sure that the drugs that they are buying are actually providing some benefit. And as simple as the analogy is, uh, I think it's, it, it's, it's worth making. Essentially, if you buy any other product and that product doesn't work, you return the product or the company fixes the product or the company sends you a new product. That's not true in, in healthcare, and it's not been true for drugs. But as the cost, particularly of specialty medicines, has increased so much, employers who are the customers of the insurance companies uh, and insurance companies themselves and states um, are increasingly interested in, in making sure that if they they are if they buy a drug or if they they pay for a drug that they're paying for something that works that is going to deliver the benefit that its clinical trials have promised it would and that's the ultimate that's the underlying theory behind 
value-based agreements. But these are much more these are much more complex to do than the usual, the simple usual uh, rebate for volume contracts, which have uh, traditionally defined uh, the pharmaceutical uh, contracting process. Is there a, a universal understanding of what works, uh, whether a drug works or not, what that means? I mean, for, for different diseases, you know, obviously. That's a great question, <clears throat> Tom. In fact, that's, that's one of the key issues here. How do we know what working means? So, for example, you could say um, in, in some serious disease, the drug might or the patient might, using the drug, improve his health status. Or he might, uh, his health status might remain as it is. Or his health status might worsen. The question becomes, if he had not taken that drug, would his health status have worsened significantly more? So it's not always easy to figure out what, what it means to say a drug is working or not. Sometimes it is. It's sometimes very easy to say, for example, that a cholesterol drug lowers uh, cholesterol because you can take a test which shows whether the LDLC level has gone up or down. But even that is actually not so simple to execute, largely because health plans don't generally have access to lab data. So they don't know, they can't, they can't quickly judge whether uh, a patient or whether a population of patients has actually seen their LDL go down or up. So it's not even when you know whether a drug is working or not, or one can theoretically know, sometimes the data isn't available to allow you to make that determination. True. Or there are other factors, the patient's still having the French fries or, or started having the French fries or whatever might might complicate that scenario. Or indeed doesn't take the drug. But in, 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 you know, we can generally figure out when the patient isn't adherent to his medicine, uh, or at least we've got good proxies for that. But in terms of deciding whether uh, a drug is improving uh, condition or not, can often be complex. And that's a lot of the, uh, and frankly, that's a lot of the work that we do. We'll take a quick break from this conversation with Roger to uh, ask you to do us a few favors for the OIS podcast. Normally, I make these requests at the end of the podcast, but why not ask up front? If you enjoy the podcast, and, and I hope you do if you've gotten this far, you could help us out by uh, giving, giving us a ranking on iTunes. Let us know uh, how we're doing. If you, if you rank us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, it helps other folks find the podcast. Also, if you're uh, talking to your colleagues in ophthalmology, talk up the podcast. Let them know what we're doing. Uh, we'd love to have uh, more people listening. We're very, very pleased with this community. But uh, the bigger it gets, I think the more uh, the more powerful it'll be. Finally, of course, reach out directly to me. My email is tom at healthag.com. Healthag is spelled like the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthag is the company that produces not only the OIS podcast but the OIS events. So. We're very proud of the content platform that we've rolled out. We'll continue to roll out more programs and, and products going forward, but would uh, would love your help promoting the podcast and also would love to hear from you about uh, what are some of the issues we should be talking about on this podcast in 2018 and who are some of the people we should be talking to. Now let's get back into this conversation with Roger Longman. 
Well, it would seem to me that ophthalmology would be one of those areas where the measurement of uh, the effects of a drug would be easier. Uh, you can you can you can measure a person's vision before and, and after, and you can really you can determine whether it's improved or not. So let's. But but I'm, there's complications there as well. And with that, we'll move into the conversation about uh, Lexterna, which was put out by Spark Therapeutics and approved by the FDA after a very moving advisory board meeting with patients sharing their experiences about seeing stars for the first time. Again, uh, uh, an accurate and, and irrefutable measure of a drug working. But even that, uh, since the company has come out with, with a price for the drug, 425000 per eye, there's there's been a lot of discussion of what, as to whether that is worth it. First, let me I'm getting ahead of myself as I sometimes do. <laughs> Let's talk about the significance of of the Lexterna um, approval and and the uh, the setting of the price for a gene therapy. Uh, what is this? What was your take of the process and what does the approval and the price sort of mean for this gene therapy space overall? First of all, it is it's it's a wonderful new medical innovation, and um, it's you know astonishingly cool to see uh, to see something like this. It's um, it's uh, I don't know if it's the first gene therapy, but my gosh, it's early, and and uh, I, we've been watching gene therapy for decades, and to see something come out now is really exciting. In terms of the economics, there, there's uh, a couple of points to make. The first one is that the drug was approved more quickly than expected, or at least more quickly by health plans than, than, than health plans expected, which meant that they, they were not perfectly ready for this approval. And that's always worrisome to health plans. The thing a health plan wants is, is certainty. They want it because, frankly, that's what uh, uh, that's what health what in health insurance is all about. It's uh, about managing risks, and uh, the more certainty there is, uh, the the fewer risks they have to manage. And that means that there's kind of a, a scramble to try to figure out what uh, what to do about this this drug. However, what you can say about Spark, unlike most small technology-driven companies is that they were very good about talking with payers and payer influencers like PBMs early on. Um, so we know that, uh, that there were a number of discussions long before this drug was approved with health plans uh, moving towards ways of managing, uh, of help uh, plans manage the cost, in fact, through risk sharing or through other um, interesting approaches that could lower costs of this therapy beyond what might otherwise be expected. So let's start first with the risk sharing. One of the interesting aspects of this drug, uh, of this contract, is that um, there is a double endpoint. That is to say, is the therapy working within a couple of months? And then is the therapy working after, I think it's 30 months? And that look back is really a valuable feature of these deals for plans because uh, you don't want, 
you know, if the drug stops working after six months or nine months, the plan is kind of out of luck. If you think about, for example, the Chimera uh, agreement or proto agreement, it, there's actually no agreement as I understand it right now. This is a cancer, uh, this is a cell therapy called a CART, CART therapy, or CART therapy, that um, uh, uh, is for a very small population of pediatric uh, cancer patients. And the deal that Novartis has uh, proposed for it is to check in after, I think, a couple of months and see whether the thing has worked. But of course, in a one-time therapy like CAR-T or like Luxturna, that's not enough. What you would really like to know is, is it working long-term? Now, what's in, also intriguing to me uh, or interesting and for which I really congratulate Spark is that what Spark's deal shows is, is that the um, uh, even if the patient has moved from the plan with which they have the deal to another plan, the Spark deal will reimburse the plan with which it signed the deal in the first place. So if the, the therapy stops working 30 months later, that initial plan, in this case, Harvard Pilgrim, um, uh, will actually get the money whether or not, will get the rebate, whether or not uh, that patient is still in the Harvard Pilgrim plan. So, you know, I think I have to say they've done a, a really interesting job uh, on this, and, um, and I congratulate them. It sounds like they, you, you commend them for getting, uh, getting in early and talking to payers uh, is that um, a conversation that that doesn't frequently happen? That the, the, the companies will go in without these conversations, uh, the, the sort of negotiations starting with payers, and um, is it something that you think we'll see more frequently going forward? Yeah, um, most companies do not do them uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, including the fact that most biotechnology companies don't really have an understanding of the payer world. It's complex. You know, uh, um, it's uh, there are multiple different lines of business within within any insurance company or within most insurance company, and uh, those different lines of business have different incentives and require different economics for many contracts they sign. So Medicare is going to be different than commercial, and commercial is going to be different than Medicaid, and each one of these uh, and, and, and companies need to understand those differences. Um, Similarly, they need to understand the highly complex world of uh, healthcare data within a plan and how the, that data flows. How do we know, back to the first question, back to one of your earlier questions, how do we know whether a drug works and does the plan have the data that allows partnership to practically decide whether the drug is working or not? Other you know, key questions, uh, how much of the rebate is going to go back to the patient to reimburse him for his copay. I mean, there's lots and lots of complexities here. Um, and different plans will have very different points of view depending on, on where, on how they make money, on which, which line of business we're talking about. So, uh, you know, I understand why, why plans don't do this. Um, but you know, we're, we're working on half a dozen of these things right now. And the fact is, is that virtually all of the payers that we work with 
tell us that you know companies come to them and say we'd like to do a value-based deal this is all pre-approval and then expect the plan to sort of come up with the contract or come up with the structure and plans are busy they can't do that and that means that a company needs to be doing this but if they do this in a stupid way in a way that that's that doesn't that doesn't fundamentally make sense within the payer uh, system that we've got they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot so they really need to understand this world very deeply very carefully before they start making moves here unfortunately they need to start making moves well before approval it sounds a lot like what we've seen on medtech for quite a number of years understanding of payment reimbursement but what it is interesting the the the, the rebate aspect i mean that is a whole different type of business that will have to have a whole set i get a whole different infrastructure to sort of manage patients going forward into months and even even years that is that something that the the that spark or or, or a, a, another biotech will need to manage they'll need to have a a team in place to to follow patients as they go through treatments uh, i don't think that spark will allow that to happen um because that's hardly uh that's hardly uh, a way of guaranteeing impartiality in judging results. They uh, they need a third party, um, which you know again what we do is we we make sure that both sides are uh, uh, can trust uh, the results of the use of the drugs and uh, the data and ultimately the uh, the economics that go back and forth between plan and manufacturer. Um, but if you don't have a third party, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. So what goes into the, the, uh, the, the creation of the, the, the price, the $425,000 per eye? Is that, uh, are you, are you looking at the, the, the change in life, the, 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 the fact that a person may be able to work again versus not work again? Is it more a measurement of what the, the market is willing to pay? Is it, is it a combination of both? Where do, where does that figure come from? Tom, I really wish I knew. Um, <laughs> the fact is, is that pricing for many, many different therapeutics is uh, a, I don't even want to call it a black art. Um, it's not. It's, a, it's often a, a finger in the wind. Um, I've just heard way too many stories about how a company would have done huge amounts of pricing research and um, uh, done lots of health economic analyses to define what the value of that drug is to society, uh, what the value of the drug is within a certain time period and so on and so forth. And they come out with a price of X and the president or the CEO of the company says, well, wait a minute, that's crazy. We need to get 2X. And suddenly the price is double. So in general, how should it be done is very different than, than how it is done. Um, we've, however, seen companies, Spark is one of them, which has um, kind of responded, you know, talked through these issues with the marketplace, with uh, payers, and with uh, other influencers in that world um, early on. The uh, most famous example of this is a drug from uh, Regeneron called Dupixent, where I think the 
CEO recognized that his previous decision to price a drug called a PCSK9, Praluent, was wrong, uh, roundly hated by payers. This was a, a drug for lowering LDL cholesterol called a PCSK9 inhibitor. Uh, and he priced it at well north, uh, at north of, I think it was $14,500 or $14,600 or something like that. And the market just said, no way. And they had, I don't think, done very careful thinking about how the market would react to such a price or anything like that. But when they launched their next drug, Dupixent, for a disease called atopic dermatitis, it'll also have other indications as well, the CEO of the company, Len Schleifer, went around to many different payers and, in, and also to a, a, an independent value assessment group called ICER, I-C-E-R, in Boston, and talked to them about pricing. What should it be priced at? How should they think about this? And he ended up, uh, this is a drug for a disease for which there is no other real new therapies or therapies that work. And this drug does work in this, uh, in this disease. And what they said is, well, the comparison is with the psoriasis drugs. And so what he did was priced this drug at a significant discount to the psoriasis drugs and at a level that this independent group, ICER, thought was, in fact, cost-effective. The drug had a lot of... Uh, what I would call black marks against it from a payer's point of view, in that it was uh, a brand new therapy for an uh, for a category that payers weren't paying for. So it was new expense for a payer. And when there is new expense for a payer, they generally uh, restrict the use of that drug pretty radically. So they had some headwinds in the marketplace to deal with. But you know, they did a great job of mitigating those headwinds, of mitigating those, uh, those uh, uh, difficult market forces, and have done not brilliantly, uh, but pretty well. You can't say it's you know, the greatest launch ever, but it certainly was an okay one. And um, I think uh, more a model for people to follow than, um, than certainly the model that they established with their the drug that they launched uh, a year and a half before, Praluent. Terrific. That's great to have a, a model to follow. The final question, just uh, going back to Spark, do you have any sense of if we're going to see wider uh, adoption or, or agreements or, or additional agreements with, with payers? We have Harvard Pilgrim already lined up and announced. Uh, do you think this will be a successful roll-up with other agreements uh, announced in the short term? Yep, I do. That's great news. <laughs> and a succinct answer. All right, terrific. Well, Roger, it's a pleasure reconnecting with you, and uh, thanks for sharing your insights on this. It's uh, obviously a, a, a very hot topic. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much, Roger Longman, for joining us on the OIS podcast and for bringing us up to speed on the challenges facing pharmaceutical companies as they try to get uh, paid for the work that they're doing. If anyone wants to find out more about Real Endpoints, its website is realendpoints.com. It's uh, all one word, realendpoints, with points being plural.com. And if you want to reach out directly to Roger, his email is roger.longman at realendpoints.com. And Longman is spelled with the uh, ending M-A-N. So 
Two great ways of finding out more on this topic. Thanks also, Roger, for uh, coming over to my breakfast table 12 years or so ago at uh, J.P. Morgan and for allowing me to work with you at Windover. It was a, a great part of my career, and I wouldn't be here without that. So that's it, folks. I've already asked what you. I've already asked you to do us a few things for the podcast. Uh, it'd be great if you could again spread the word about the podcast. Now let me help you. On April 12th, we'll be having OIS at ASCRS. Once again, you have until February 1st to sign up for the discounted rate. If you know you're going to OIS at ASCRS, why wait? Save yourself a couple hundred bucks. Go to OIS.net, register for OIS at ASCRS, and we will see you in Washington, D.C.